Hi, this is Larry Pasca, Executive Director of NCSS, the National Council for the Social Studies. This episode features an author published in an NCSS journal. Please enjoy. You're listening to Visions of Education, a podcast where we take a look at big ideas in education from different perspectives. Hi, I'm Michael Milton, a high school teacher from Massachusetts. And I'm Dan Kretka, an education professor in Texas. We're here to help bridge the gap between educators in the K-12 and those professors in higher ed. We hope this podcast will help bring those fuzzy ideas in education into focus. Michael, I know you're the kind of guy that spends a lot of time online. Is that fair to say? Not as much as I used to, but yes, I do spend a fair amount online. Young children tend to pull you away from lots of things in life. Oh my goodness. But towards much love, of course, right? (laughs) Yeah, yeah. So I'm curious, when you're doing research online, do you have a method to your madness? Do you have a plan? Do you know what you're doing? Yeah, so when I'm looking for some current events information, what I typically do, I go right on to Facebook, and whatever people on my Facebook wall say, those are the ones that I go with. Right. The first Facebook post, whatever shows up at the top of the Google algorithm is correct, right? There's a study on that. I'm fairly certain that that is how that it works. If anyone's only listens to the first 30 seconds of this podcast, they're going to be really poorly informed on how to find stuff online, aren't they? Yeah. Yeah. That's not really how I do it. Well, I know a lot of teachers do research projects in school and so much research now. I mean, we're not going to, you know, use the Dewey Decimal card catalog system and finding books a lot of times. We're doing it from our classrooms. So do you know, I mean, do most teachers in your school have like a plan or does your school have a plan to help students learn how to find information online? There's, you hear people talk about the, what is it called? The crap method. Uh, (laughs) C is what credibility, R is reliability. I feel like we should, I feel like you should Google and see what comes up. (laughs) <laughs> and so I hear people u- using that word. Actually, I heard the librarian using it the other day, which is kind of great. <laughs> and I remember remember the old days it used to be like, you can only use .orgs at .coms or something or .edus. .edus, yeah. I've even saw, seen the – what I don't know what the military one is in there. Someone told me that one. That was a new one recently that that's a credible site. But nowadays it's not that credible because, well, anyone can get these websites now. Right, right. And we've had some episodes in where we've talked a little bit about this in the past, right? Sarah McGrew came on and we right. talked about some of the shag resources that they have. And I do, I've done some of those with my students and it's pretty amazing how the ways that they think about where they find good information is so dependent on the source and not kind of the method of, of that source, right? Um, I'm not sure if I'm saying that well, but in short, like we do the Wikipedia assessment that they have and they always start with that it's all you know, inaccurate. And we'll look, we look at the one they have on there is George right. Bush's webpage. And then I say, what would be a good source? Would it have other sources? Would it reference to other good sources? Who would be the editors on that? And we kind of go through and once they realize the page is locked and has a million citations, I actually think it's like over 430 on that page. They start to reconsider and at least have a more critical disposition towards like what you know, makes a site that I actually need to look at this site and see, you know, if the tweet is from an expert, maybe it's a tweet I could learn a little from. Yeah, that's interesting. Sometimes I feel like when, you know, we were like students, you want to get things from both sides or 
And I always find that lacking nuance, right? Because if we're trying to teach that, like, it's not just both sides. There's also multiple layers within that. Like, it's really much more complex than that. And where do you teach that? Yeah, in, in school, I guess. is. <laughs> I guess you should, right? <laughs> right, that's what we should be doing. So I think we've kind of talked a little bit about some of our thoughts on this. And we've learned a little bit from our past guests. But we realize we probably need to learn a little bit more, right? So we brought in a couple guests today who are recently published and really well established in helping people make sense of how to find quality information online. And so we would like to welcome into the podcast, Erica Hodgen and Joe Kahn. Welcome. Hi, it's great to be here. It's great to have you here. Can you two start by just telling us a little bit about your backgrounds in education? Sure, I'm happy to start. This is Erica Hodgen, and my background, I started as a classroom teacher. I taught social studies and English um, at the middle school and the high school level. And then I went to Mills College to get my master's and graduate and do my graduate work, also my doctorate. And that's how I met Joe Kahn, who connections with him at Mills learned about the work of the Civic Engagement Research Group. And that group is now based out of UC, the University of California at Riverside. And we're in the Graduate School of Education. So Joe and I have worked together for the last, I think, six years. And a little bit more about our civic engagement research group is that we do a combination of research and also applied work in the field with educators and schools and districts. And our focus is really around understanding the nature of youth civic engagement, in particular, the impact of the digital age on how we participate, how do we learn about issues, how do we get our voices out there, how do we take action and get involved are many opportunities and there are lots of challenges to that. And so that's been much of our research, but then also we do a lot of work, as I said, with schools and districts to really promote more civic learning and digital civic learning and also more equitable opportunities so that all young people have access because we believe that it's so incredibly critical and schools play such an essential role in that. So that's a little bit about our group. I'll let Joe add in more. I picture you guys having matching jackets and doing a lot of synchronized <laughs> dance. Is that accurate or am I just making this up? We should work on that. Not accurate yet. That's what I'll yes. say. <laughs> yeah. Maybe we should start with t-shirts. I think that yeah. would be at least the first step. The cool. dance, I don't think you you don't want to see me do that. I think it would boost productivity, right? It's like the factory study where they painted the walls and everyone like got really excited about being on their spot on the assembly line for like two hours. I think this could last longer. I'm taking notes. This is stuff to think about. So hi, everybody. My name is Joe Kahn, and really excited to be able to be part of the podcast with you guys today and to share a little bit about our work. As Erica said, broadly, we focus on young people's civic and political engagement, as well as on how things that happen in schools can promote and support young people in you know, effectively voicing their concerns and working to have influence. Like Erica, I started as a teacher. I was a social studies teacher in Brooklyn, New York, before going to graduate school, and have been a professor for about 25 years now. About 10 years ago, we began with some support from the MacArthur Foundation, taking a look at the ways in which digital media was transforming all political participation, but especially young people's political participation. 
and in thinking about what are the ways in which teachers can sort of catch up to some of these challenges. Because I think for all of us, or I'll at least speak for myself, I'm a long way from the cutting edge when it comes to a lot of these technologies. But as an educator, it became obvious that even even folks who don't necessarily stay on the cutting edge of some of the newest innovations can play a big role in supporting young people in terms of the ways in which they engage with these new media. And what we can share a little bit about today was some findings that come really from two sources. One from a large-scale national survey that we did of young people, where we uh, asked them a lot about their civic and political engagement, as well as about their educational experiences. And one of the nice things about that survey is that we were able to follow a group of several hundred young people throughout their high school careers. And also we'll talk about some work that we've done with teachers in California, in Illinois, and in Texas about some of the specific ways that they've worked and found to really support, to support students. Because in many respects, the teachers are ahead of the researchers in figuring out and exploring and experimenting with how do you provide these kinds of supports. That's interesting because I do think one of the characteristics that I find in really great teachers is that they are very good learners of their students and who their students are. And to me, that seems such an important component of figuring out how young people are going to grow on in, the, as, in their participation online. And so it wouldn't surprise me that some teachers who are really thoughtful probably find ways to let their students share the things they're doing online and use those as, as starting points for critical engagement with what are we going to do. So having said that, you two both have done some great research and some great work. And so today we, were, we are here to specifically talk about your 2018 recent publication in the September issue of Social Education, and that article was titled Misinformation in the Information Age, What Teachers Can Do to Support Students. So first, congratulations on your publication. Thank you. Yay. And you guys, you also have done research going a ways back, and I'm sure we'll touch on a number of those things, including a 2016 TRSE article that's been getting a lot of attention, Redesigning Civic Education for the Digital Age, Participatory Politics, and the Pursuit of Democratic Engagement. So I'm sure we'll get to talk about some of those things. But if you want to start with telling us a little bit about your work on your social education article. Sure. I'll say a little bit about about where we started, or at least how we're thinking about it now. And I think like most folks right now, I think we're all often painfully aware of the challenges around the spread of misinformation around political topics. And I think we're also aware that in many ways, and, and you, Dan, alluded to this in your intro, what it means to fully prepare young people for political life has changed in some important respects. Because the practice of politics is different, and it's not different in every way, but because it's different in some important ways, we need to respond as educators to that new environment if we're going to prepare young people for it. And I think it's, it's not too much to say that to some degree how well our democracy functions depends on how well we do ultimately prepare young people for these challenges. Obviously, educators or social studies educators aren't the only factors, but we have the opportunity to play an important role. So let me just say a little bit about some of the dynamics that are going on that maybe are changing some things that we then need to think about as educators. So first, there's no doubt 
that there have been many major changes to the ways in which politics are practiced, especially by young people in relation to digital media. So where in the past information was identified, assessed, synthesized, and circulated largely through institutions that had fairly rigorous gatekeeping functions. So, you know, you couldn't get a mass audience so easily without having it pass through editors, people who own networks, people who would give you the platform to share it. And that has a lot of pluses and minuses. Certainly, it meant that for some people, getting their voice out there was very hard, much harder than it is today. But it also had some pluses because it meant that you couldn't get any idea out there to a mass audience as easily. That isn't to say there wasn't always misinformation because there was but the ease with which it circulates now is enormous. Another thing that's really changed is that to a much greater degree, people used to get their news and information from similar sources. And now I think folks are aware of ideas like echo, echo chambers and filter bubbles, the ways in which frequently we get our news from silos, from sources that tend to align with what we already believe. And there's lots of evidence that people seek out information that will confirm what they already believe. Well, that becomes a very understandable but risky practice because it, it, it means that a lot of people are getting news from places they trust and they're hearing things they like, whether or not those things are accurate. And the kinds of back and forth that might help us wrestle with the legitimacy of varied claims is often quite truncated in these echo chains. That's actually a really good point because Michael always checks to see like the success of our blog by reading his mom's blog posts on our blog. Yeah. And she and always rates We're doing it. very well. She says it's the best blog in the world or the best podcast in the world. So it's like a familial echo chamber and filter bubble right there. <laughs> no, I mean, I do. I, the reality is, is that the dynamics you're talking about do, do really play out. Right. And they've always played out, not not obviously just I mean, everybody should should get praise from their mother. They don't just play out that way, but they they do play out profoundly because one of the things we find about young people's news habits is that a huge percentage of their news is uh, they're reading because their friends sent it to them or their friends posted it and they're they're seeing it as a post. And so frequently people are getting their information from family and friends. And that's not necessarily the broadest or the most discerning group of people. But another thing I want to highlight just before we, you know, while we're sort of laying out some of the challenges, is the relationship of all of this to what's really been massively increased partisan divide. So it's also true that over, and this is not a uh, short-term change, this is a multi-decade change. It's really been, partisanship has been growing since the 1970s. But the more you identify with a particular partisan belief and the more strongly you identify with it, the more likely you are to be accepting of misinformation that aligns with that view. And the more likely you are not to care about factual corrections that come from folks who hold different views. And so while we've seen a massive increase in partisanship going on, that context easily can fuel the spread and engagement with what we might think of as misinformation. These are all things that, of course, come into the social studies classroom. And I was just thinking, and you can even see this to where, and maybe this is just me, but it seems more prevalent now, that you'll even see different news outlets 
writing stories about how the other news outlets covered it because I think the people who are more likely to go to their outlets have negative views of the other ones. So then that becomes, again, it's like even the mainstream news outlets have participated in, in this in strange new ways. Right. Well, and, and this is one of these things that actually is very studyable and, and it's a little scary what you find. So I'll, I'll share with you, for example, a, a common kind of study that's done on global warming related. You show people a policy to combat global warming and you say it was advanced by so-and-so of the Republican caucus. And then you show a similar group of people the exact same policy, but you say it was advanced by the Democratic caucus. And guess what you find? Democrats judge positively the policy to a far greater degree when they were told it was advanced by Democrats and to a far more negative degree when they were told it was advanced by Republicans and vice versa. So what we see is, uh, you know, and people have talked a lot about tribalism. People tend to believe and affirm and support stuff that they feel is coming from their side. And in many respects, our ability to critically assess stuff on its merits is constrained by those tribal beliefs. And so one of the things and one of the ways I think that Eric and I are so excited about and believe so much in why schools are important is teachers are perhaps uniquely positioned to push against those dynamics because schools are places where accuracy matters. They're places where you're trying to teach critical thinking and objective assessment. And it therefore at least creates the possibility or a setting that is much different than when you're sitting on the couch in your living room to think carefully about these kinds of of issues and engage with them. So I guess the question most people would have, and you started to hint at this, is does civic media literacy instruction make a difference, which is a section in your actual article, and then what can teachers do? So does it make a difference, and what can teachers do? So those are great questions, and I'll share first some good news and then some bad news, and then a couple things that we believe teachers can do that will make a difference. So the first piece of good news is that early research does show that civic media literacy education can be significantly beneficial. It really can experimental study as part of our national survey. And that showed that young people who had had civic media literacy learning opportunities were 26% more likely to be able to identify a political post that was inaccurate and say that it was inaccurate. And that was even when the post aligned with their own perspective on the issue. And that is very good news. Yeah, it's very exciting. I mean, it does show that when we do really attend to these sorts of issues and really bring it up in the classroom, it makes a difference for young people. They really are able to refine their skills and strategies in this way. And as Joe talked about, be able to really reflect on how their bias might make them pulled to believe something that may not be inaccurate, may not be accurate. I'll share some bad news, which is that we know that media literacy instruction is really lacking. So we know that it's often, you know, it's hard for teachers to squeeze that in. It's hard to find time and space for it. And we also find that it's often inequitable. So that means not all students are getting access to it. So we also found in our survey that only like 33% of high school age youth did not report having a single class session that focused on how to tell if information they found online was trustworthy. And we found that only 16% said that they had more than a few classes on this topic. So 
as we know, young people need more than one class session. And there are ways in which that, you know, it's really important to integrate this across the curriculum. What we found is that social studies is a critical place for this to be integrated alongside the core curriculum, but it also can be integrated into other content areas. So what we've seen in our work with teachers and schools across the country is that it's not only in social studies. So we've seen some promising examples in various grade levels and content areas. And there are three approaches in particular that we really want to draw people's attention to that we believe really make a big difference. So the first one that we wanted to highlight is that we really see how incredibly important it is for educators to help students develop skills and strategies, but they're, but not just the kind of like rote checklist or the like, here's the five things you do every single time, but more that that teachers are really helping students develop a kind of nuanced sense of the complexity of online information today. So we were talking, you all were talking about this in your introduction. It's not just about looking at whether a website has a .org or a .edu. It's much more complex than that. And so we really do find that when teachers take the time to really help young people engage in a much more critical kind of inquiry process around understanding the sort of, you know, complexity of the information that they're finding, but also digging into the information that they find on a particular website or in a particular source. And it sounds like you all had Sarah McGrew on your podcast not too long ago. So the Stanford History Education Group has done a lot of work related to this around civic online reasoning, where they found in their studies that young people can, if they can sort of mimic the strategies that professional fact checkers use, where they go, they read laterally is the strategy that they, they leave a site and be able to find more information about the credibility elsewhere. So there are kinds of, there's strategies, more nuanced strategies like this that we, we've really seen make a difference. And so there's one teacher in particular that we worked with in California, who's a high school English teacher, and she developed something called the Trustometer. And so her students developed these sort of critical inquiry questions that they used to assess sources and online information when they were doing research. And they would use this kind of trustometer process in small groups so they could really talk through what are they finding and how do they weigh either the strengths or the weakness of that source compared to other things that they're finding online. And through that sort of more deeper dialogic process in groups, they were able to really identify and practice these kinds of skills and strategies. Could we talk yeah. about this trust? Is it a? I I read it as a trustometer, but I think trustometer sounds much better. <laughs> is it like my arm when I try to like measure applause? Yeah. So th- exactly. So they did a kind of like they basically gave each sort not points, but they gave it sort of merit based on how credible is this? Do we? How trustworthy is it? And and why? And then they had to really build a case for each source. So that if it kind of goes further, further, further on the trustometer, then you can really feel like I can trust this for these reasons. But here's maybe some other reasons I don't trust it and I need to go dig deeper to be able to identify. It seems like, and by the way, when Michael was describing this earlier, he was doing his whole arm like it was a meter going back and forth. So I was able to envision all this. It seems like what that teacher is doing, which is so sophisticated and wise, is that they're getting students to look at trustworthiness on a spectrum as opposed to a binary. 
which I think is one of the challenges of all of education, right, is to get students to start seeing something that's more trustworthy and less trustworthy and understand there's a complexity within that and just figure out where's your cutoff points for, okay, I'm throwing this source out or uh, I can take something from it or this is a great source. I think that sounds like really good work. Yeah, exactly. I think it really helps students see it's not as easy as a yes or no answer, right? We really do have to dig not only within that source itself, but you need to dig in other sources and other pieces of information to really be able to understand the bigger picture. In many respects, when we're trying to answer a question or form an opinion, we're driven by two sometimes competing factors. One is what psychologists call directional motivation. So people are often motivated to try to win the argument, to try to justify what they want to be true. And the other is something called accuracy motivation. People are trying to build a strong, powerful, credible argument. And I feel like one of the things that you know we all struggle with in our society is that frequently directional motivation is what wins. So, I mean, I think we see this all the time when we watch politicians. What they're trying to do is get you to believe they're right, not trying to show the nuance of things, right? And I think what this teacher is doing that's pushing back is she's really socializing kids to focus on accuracy, not just on winning the argument. And I, I feel like a lot of times, like when I was in school, and they were sometimes very exciting, very productive classes, the teacher was trying to divide up the class based on how you feel about the death penalty, now argue for your side. And the risk of doing that is sometimes you end up diminishing your commitment to accuracy and boosting your commitment to winning. And I feel like a lot of what this teacher is doing is trying to reset the balance a little bit. It reminds me of my favorite, well, one of my favorite presidential moments when I believe it was President Bartlett when he was having a, a debate and he said, wow, those are really good words. What's the next 10 words? And then he talked about the importance of nuance. Now, I realize that he's just a television show character. But I really like the West Wing. <laughs> he would be a better president than some. <laughs> and that also makes me just think about the importance of kind of Socratic questioning and being able to ask follow-up questions when you're doing deliberations with students. I've been working with my teacher candidates on that for a while. Whenever a student makes a dubious claim or makes throws out an opinion about how they feel strongly about something but don't have any supporting evidence or really aren't you know, adding anything to move the discussion in any, any direction. I asked them, well, ask them where they got that information. How did you come to that belief? You know, and trying to get them to ask Socratic questions to get them to kind of dig in and realize, oh, sometimes their arguments fall apart, like within one or two Socratic questions. And they realize they don't know anything on the topic they're arguing passionately about. Yeah. And I think much of what Joe, you know, you were saying around the, I mean, there is this piece around the sort of focus on the importance of accuracy. And then there's also, I think, the second strategy that we found that's really important is to be able to give time and space for young people to reflect on their own thought processes. So to be able to really understand the role that their thinking plays in judging accuracy and credibility. So as Joe mentioned, this sort of idea of directional motivation is incredibly important for young people to understand and to, you know, to see how that could really influence, especially around civic and political issues or civic and political information, 
people come in with their own opinions and their perspectives as they should, but they should also be aware of how that influences the ways in which they judge information and the credibility of that. So the second kind of strategy that we found was so important was for students to have a sense of their kind of metacognition. They have an awareness of their own thinking and learning and that that's important to reflect on when you are doing research like this or investigating issues. And so another example to throw out there is we worked with a teacher in Illinois who was a high school social studies teacher who he, before doing a research project with students, he actually recorded himself doing research. And he did a, a screencast of a Google search so he was recording himself and he was doing a think aloud at the same time. So he's typing into Google his search terms. Things are coming up and he's talking through why he's clicking on various things that have come up. And then he's talking through when he goes to that website, what does he see? How is he interpreting that? How is he making sense of it? Why is he clicking here? Why is he going to the about page on the site? Why is he then clicking away onto another window and typing in information to see what else he gets about that information? And so I think by kind of making visible that type of thinking and that sort of process and also thinking through your own opinions or why elevating this sort of idea of why am I doing what I'm doing, um, I think is really important, especially when we talk about sort of judging accuracy and credibility. And just one other example I'll throw out there is that we um, focused on in the article, which I think is a really helpful way to sort of help students chronicle their thinking over time, especially when you're doing a sort of deeper or longer term research project. We had one teacher in California have students blog about their sort of capstone research project. They chose an issue that mattered to them and they kept a blog, it was almost like an online journal really, of what they were learning as they were researching this topic and what sources really were effective, where were they running into roadblocks, where did they have questions about what was credible or what they were finding, and then how their thinking shifted over time. And then it also gave their classmates the ability to read the blog posts to learn what other people were doing and how their thinking was unfolding and to also comment and give them ideas and feedback. So again, we found that sort of opening up that process, making it really visible and engaging with each other and really identifying the ways in which that influences your thinking to be really significant. That's crazy. I do that for my research paper where students, they do like an audio blog where they talk about the sources that they have and they talk about their research, what's going well. And then they get into small groups to also discuss. That's so great that that's, oh, that's cool. awesome. Isn't that episode two? That is episode two. Yeah. That was that goes back. Yeah, we talked about that in episode two. I remember thinking that that was a fantastic strategy, Michael. So glad that you are corroborated in your strategy. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so I'm happy to share the third strategy that we found to be really important was that students really need practice. And I know that sounds simple. And I know, you know, I know we all are stretched for time in our classrooms, but we did find that it's really important for students to have multiple opportunities over time with a variety of topics to be able to practice these kinds of skills and this type of thinking and reflection. So instead of just having 
you know, young people sort of thinking and engaging around these types of issues with the one big research project at the end of the year when the stakes are really high. Instead, we found that it's really important for young people to have multiple opportunities and some that are low stakes, right, where they can really practice and really, you know, dive in and figure out what is challenging, where do I mess up, what comes up that doesn't, isn't really accurate or doesn't really have, you know, a sort of strong meter reading on credibility. And I think it's also really important around instilling habits. So if we really want young people to be able to take these skills and use them um, in lots of different contexts and settings, then it's important for them to have multiple opportunities to practice. And so one last example that I'll share is a, a teacher in Texas who was a ninth grade humanities teacher. And she had her students once a week do us kind of extended do now, where they had a question around a kind of current event or an issue, civic or political issue that was coming up. And the students would investigate this issue. They would do a sort of quick round of research. They would pick one source that they thought was reliable, and they would link to that source and write a very brief sort of statement about their perspective and how it was backed up by this source, and they would tweet it out using the same common hashtag. And then this opportunity, doing it weekly, but also doing it in that sort of public way meant that they could all engage with each other around what sources they found. And then they would do it on a weekly basis. So they could also have some reflection on how does this get easier? What are the challenges that come up? And I think the other thing is it not only helped them improve their skills, but it also helped them build confidence. And that was, you know, something that we found to be really significant. So I'd say... You know, I think we found that these three approaches together really help young people to be able to navigate misinformation and be more effective and thoughtful in their kind of engagement around civic and political issues. I would say that I know, you know, it is daunting to sort of think about how do I integrate these things. So my, my broad advice would be to pick one thing and start with that. And just start small and be and integrate it into your classroom and see, you know, what what do students learn, what comes up, and how can we sort of think and push our strategies and our efforts forward and really being attentive to misinformation and accuracy and credibility. I'm going to be a way better media literacy teacher now after this podcast. I'm definitely going to take a lot of this to my class and think about how we can include it. And, you know, a lot of it is reflective of what we know about good teaching, having multiple opportunities, being metacognitive, and being able to decipher through nuance and develop strategies for addressing problems. So this makes a lot of sense. Oh, good. Yeah, we definitely, you know, when we were thinking through these approaches and basically when we're thinking through what have we seen from really innovative and strong teachers in the field, we realized this is really significant. It, it aligns with what is good practice. And so it's nice to sort of remind ourselves that, you know, this isn't uncommon to what we do across curriculum. It's just really thinking about specifically how do we do it as it relates to civic media. So thank you, Erica Hodgen and Joe Kahn for chatting with us today. Yeah, thank you. It was great. Definitely. Can you two tell us where can our listeners find you and your work online? So... If folks are interested in learning more about our work, they can go to our website, which is www.civicsurvey.org. And of course, the article is on the social education website. I do believe it is open access for now. So get over there to socialstudies.com and go over to the publications, find social education and look at the September 2018 issue so you can view their article. 
Are either of you on Twitter or on any other spaces online where we could find more of your work? Yeah, I was just going to say, and we do have a Twitter handle if people wanted to follow us. And it's at ed, E-D, for the number four, democracy. So at ed for democracy, and that's the number four. And then on our website, too, we just started doing a newsletter that really is focused on educational resources around these types of issues related to civic engagement and civic media literacy. And so there's a, on the homepage of the civicsurvey.org site, there's a way to sign up for our newsletter, which we send out monthly. So we will not bother people daily. Don't worry. (laughs) Excellent. And I look forward to being able to one day buy a jacket for myself. Yes, we we will work on that. (laughs) And a cotton, you know, like a, I guess you can probably put your your dance moves on YouTube. (laughs) Dancing for democracy. I feel like that could be a thing (laughs) with the number four. (laughs) <laughs> right. <laughs> well, we really enjoyed talking with you both again so much today, and we appreciate you joining us and certainly hope to continue the discussion online and in other spaces, too. Hey, thanks so much. It was, it was great talking with you guys. Thank you. Yeah, thank you all. So we are all about sharing the Learning at the Vision of Education podcast. If you're doing something fun, creative in education, or you just want to chat, tweet us at Vision of Ed. We're also on Facebook. And of course, if you haven't already, and really you should, follow us, subscribe to Visions of Ed on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Google Play, and anywhere you want us to be, except Spotify, apparently. Someday we'll get on there. If you write us a five-star review, we will read it on the air, and writing those really helps people find those this podcast, so please do so. You can also find me on Twitter. I'm at Dan Kretka. And I'm at 42 Think Deep. Until next time, this is the Visions of Education podcast. Signing off.